Your, your Bible's open, by the way. We have a listen to that, and we see that we have a passage that pretty much hops on and on about sin and judgment. And for some people, this would be, this would be exactly what they, what they would expect, isn't it? They would expect that this is a stereotypical thing that you hear when you're talking about Christianity or when you're talking about religion. It's got all that stuff to do with uh, hell and eternal pain and us as wretched sinners awaiting judgment. Now look, this is part of what we'll, we'll see today. Uh, Christianity, trusting in Jesus, it does take sin and judgment very seriously. But you would be, you'd be utterly mistaken to lump it into the same category as religion and as religions. Christianity, this life of trusting in Jesus, has something completely unique to say about sin and judgment. It is unexpected in what it does with the fact that we are people who are under sin. And this is part of what we're going to have a look at today. Now, there's three things I want to show you, and they'll, they'll be on your sermon outline, and see if you can decipher my, my cryptic main point here. Here's the first thing I want to show you. Firstly, I want to show you that all are under sin. Secondly, I want to show you that all are under sin. And then thirdly, I want to show you that all are under sin. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll have a look at, at that passage together. Father, would you please be, be gracious to us as we have a look at this passage? We long for your Holy Spirit to be at work. We long for the truth of the truthfulness of our sinfulness and the truthfulness of your Son, for those things to, to impact, to grip, to change our hearts and our lives. Be gracious to us, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here's the first thing I want to show you. I want to show you that all are under sin. Have a look at verse 9. What then? Are we any better? Not at all, for we have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. Now from that, he's going to go on and he's going to say, there's no one righteous, there's no one who understands, there's no one who does what is good. But stop for a moment and have a look at verse 9. Have a, have a think about what it is that Paul is saying there. We have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. Now, I think it was, it was Troy who showed us the Gentile part of that a couple of weeks ago. And Paul there, he, he pulls back the curtains of, of what's actually going on in the pagan world. He, it's kind of an expose, okay? And he shows it is, it is a world of of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but not in any kind of glamorous way. It involves, it involves a rejection of God. It involves a, a darkening of our minds. It involves these people, this world, serving something, worshiping something that isn't God. It involves orgies and men sleeping with men and women sleeping with women. And you don't even have to go that far. Do you remember what the passage said? It said, quarrels, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. You look at that kind of a charge sheet. You look at that and you can go, yeah, okay. Maybe I can understand why the Gentiles are under sin. If that kind of stuff is true, then that's a fair statement to say. But do you see, 
Do you see what Paul's saying in verse 9? He's, he's taking all of that stuff and then as, as a man who has a background, as a religious, moral, law-abiding, devout Jew, he says, verse 9, what then, are we any better? Not at all. Both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. How can he say that? How can you place what we've seen from chapter 1 about the pagan world, how can you place people like that with the Jews, people who are morally upright, people who know the true God? How can you place the Jews in the same boat as those filthy pagans? Are we any better? Not at all. Both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. Now, you might not realize it yet, but that, that is an astounding statement that he is saying there. Who is under this thing called sin? We'll get to what sin is in our second point. But who is under this thing called sin? Well, we have all the people that we might expect. We have the immoral. We have the irreligious. We have the pedophiles. We have the criminals. We have the murderers. We have the money launderers. But with them, we have the religious. We have the moral. We have the people who you look at them and you go, that's a good guy. That's a good woman. We have all the people who somehow think that what they're doing and who they're doing it for, that somehow that grants them some kind of diplomatic immunity. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. You got it all wrong. All are under sin. Don't be mistaking that. Now, do you know what that does for us? I reckon it gets us asking a question, which is in verse 9. Are we any better? Because this is what we started with. We sin, judgment, all that kind of stuff. We're used to that being used as part of religion, as being part of, uh, used by religion and being part of religion. But here is the difference between Christianity and religion. The world especially religion, uses things like sin and judgment to create these kinds of, of tiers and, and levels. You know, you go look at the world's religions and they'll tell you, quick, go do this, become this, and then you know what? You can look down on those infidels, those pagans, those irreligious, hang even those non-Christians, okay? Actually, you can even look down on Christians. But Christianity goes... Look here, you religious, moral people, you self-righteous people. Do you want to know something? You're in exactly the same boat as those people that you look down on. You think you're on the upper decks, you know, (laughs) sipping your lattes, (laughs) but you're not. You're all in the lower decks together. Do you see what Christianity is saying? Sin and judgment is there, but the way that it operates within Christianity is utterly unique. You won't find a way to make yourself feel better by comparing yourself to other people. And this is exactly what we do. You see, we might not even think, I don't don't know all all of you guys very well. But we might, not much, we might not think much of ourselves. Maybe we have low self-esteem. But there is, usually there is someone who we can find who is worse than us. So, you know, we go, oh, I have an issue with my temper, okay? But at least I'm not like Jimmy who, who cheats on his tax return, okay? I'm not like that. And so I, oh, you know, feel a little bit better about myself. We need to listen carefully here. 
if you're looking for a leg up on other people, then don't come to, to Jesus and don't come to Christianity. Because the starting point is that all are under sin. And if you don't get that, then you don't get Jesus. You don't get the Jesus who comes and says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We're blind if we can't see our sin or if we think our sin isn't bad. Now, most of us in this room are people who are trusting in Jesus. And I I hope you can already see how this starts to challenge us. We'll we'll get to what sin is soon in in our second point, as I said. Uh, But we know, don't we? We know as people who are trusting in Jesus that our sin issue has been taken care of. But the danger is that as forgiven sinners, we forget this simple truth. All are under sin. Because what that statement is meant to do for us is that it is meant to introduce some kind of radical humility and even some kind of empathy for for other people. Because we are forgiven. If we're trusting in Jesus, we are forgiven. But let's not ever think that that is something that makes us better than other people. We're better off in heaps of ways. Okay, We've been recreated. We've been uh, given this new relationship with God. But better? No, we're not. See, Christians are people who can never look down on any other person because they realize that when it says that all are under sin, that that what's going on there is that it is showing us our shared humanity. We have a shared fallen humanity with every single person in this world. Look at it this way. If you came from a broken home, how could you possibly look down on someone else who shares that kind of background? If you have, you or someone in your family is, uh, has been struggling with alcoholism or an ED, how could you possibly look down on someone who comes from that same kind of background? It's unthinkable. And so when we understand that we all, everyone, shares this fallen humanity as our background, (laughs) how can we possibly look down on someone who comes from the same stuff as us? Who are we? Who who am I? Who are you currently in danger of looking down on? Uh, In the home, at work, at school? Knowing Jesus is utterly unique in not not offering people a way to see themselves as better than others. Yes, we take sin and judgment very seriously. Okay, We hate sin, and we don't want people to face the wrath of God. But it never places us in a position where we look at other people and we go, yep, I'm better. You see the first thing? All are under sin. Are we any better? Not at all. Radical humility. Now, let's build on that. Okay? We've been, I've been going on, at least, uh, about sin, and we haven't really spoken about what sin is. Uh, and so, what is sin? Well, this is our second point. Okay? All are under sin. Have a look at verses 10 to 12, and I'll give that a read. As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. 
Now, isn't, isn't that the problem with religion? Isn't that the problem with Christianity? You read a passage like that and you go, that is pessimistic, over the top, and potentially not true at all. There is no one righteous, not even one. <laughs> Are you serious? You can't find one righteous person? There is no one who seeks God. But what are, you, what are you saying about the Buddhist spiritualist? You're saying they're not seeking God? When people come to church, we even call them seekers. What are we doing? There is no one who does what is good, not even one. How the heck can that be true? I know plenty of people, not even, not even Christians, okay, who do good things, who say kind words, who are involved in charities. No one who does good, not even one. Not even one? See, we, we have to deal with this because Paul at the moment sounded like one of those kids that the parents have to take aside and go, now listen here, Paulie, you're being a little bit dramatic in your language and I want you to calm down and use language that's a little bit more truthful. All of those verses that you, you see there are verses that are drawing on powerful and rich Old Testament passages. And uh, they, are not, <laughs> they are not a kid being overly dramatic. They're actually from a God who is almost weeping in anguish and pain. Because that right there is a sob story. It is dripping with anguish. There is, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who understands all have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good. Not even one. That is, that is God wearing his heart on his sleeve there. He is looking down from heaven on the human race. And this is what he sees. He sees, for instance, people who do not truly seek him for himself. Sure, there are people who are looking for blessing from God. There are, are people who are looking to have their prayers answered from God. There are people who are looking to have a better life, and so they turn to God. They're looking for something to do with them. But no one seeks God simply for him. Simply because he is so utterly worthy, simply because he is so utterly beautiful. You see that? Okay. Are there people who are seeking God? Yes, they are. Okay. But why? For themselves? Or simply for Him because He is so worth it? Let me put it this way. Friendship. Think about friendship, okay? Uh, why, do we get into, why do we get into friendships? Uh, if there is someone who is powerful, then sometimes we can seek that friendship because it does something for us. Okay, we'll even put up with them when they're being absolute idiots towards us, okay? Because I'm going to get something out of this. I'm getting something out of this. I, I'm friends with X, and <laughs> do you know who she is? <laughs> I'm someone because of my relationship with them. It makes me look like someone. And, and I know that when a crisis arises, when there's something that I need, I have, I have X in my, in my box, in my back pocket, okay? A friend who can help out, someone who can do something for me. And so we have powerful friends. Now, why do you think we have loser friends? 
You might be tempted to go, oh, it's because you know, we're kind and you know, we're, we're good at heart and we like to do good things. Is it really that though? <laughs> Sometimes I reckon we're in it because of how it'll make us look. I'll look good when people look and they go, oh, gee, look at so-and-so. Look at how, look at the losers he hangs out with. <laughs> You must be such a kind-hearted person to be able to hang out with those kinds of people and for not to, you know, not to feel socially awkward or to think, oh, it's going to make me look bad. See, so, yeah, I, I wonder if uh, sometimes we have loser friends because we'll look good <laughs> or because we'll have someone who will fawn over us. They'll just be so grateful that so-and-so is friends with them, that so-and-so is willing to associate with them. Now, you know, after saying all of that, I feel like potentially none of us are ever going to go make new friends. Um, <laughs> that's not meant to be the case. And, you know, Christianity changes how you view somebodies and how you view nobodies. And it leads you to a point where you don't do it for get what you can get out of it. You do it simply because, well, you love the people. Anyway, that's besides the point. What we're being shown here is that God looks at the world and his heart, it, it rends. No one seeks God, no one. No one goes looking for God simply for him. We do it for us, okay? Because I have that, that powerful friend, and his name is God. And boy, you know, I'm waiting for all the things that he can do for me. And even the good that we do, take that loser friends example. Sorry, it was bad, you know, crass in some ways. But take that. Even the good that we do, it's flawed. We do good. But what's behind it? This is God's, this is God's verdict of us. And it's, it's not hyperbole. It is said in, in absolute anguish. We aren't righteous. We, we don't understand. How could we? Because if we did, then we would run to God for Him. But instead, we have turned away. This is what happens. You know what the result is? Have a look at verse 12. Verse 12 says that we've marred our humanity. We have, as verse 12 says, become useless. Okay? Not, not a very PC thing to say to someone, you're useless. Uh, but think about it. Grab an object that is made for a specific purpose. Let's, let's say soap. Okay? It's got a couple of purposes, a couple of ways in which it's used. Now try and use that to row a boat with an oar that is made of soap in a storm. What are you doing? You're taking something that was useful in the right context and it has now become useless. It's, it's even actually become dangerous. Us, made for God, made to love Him, but we don't. We've become useless. So let me say this again. These words are not hyperbole. It's not Paul having some kind of tantrum. What they're doing is they are capturing relational bereavement. And we need to get to what verses 13 to 17 say, but just stop here for a moment. Do, do you understand what that means? Do you understand what is at the heart of sin when we look at something like that? Sin is not some neutral thing. It's not like picking up a stick, throwing it at a bush, and the worst that happens is that a couple of, of leaves flutter down. It's not some formula of 1 plus 1 equals 2. Sin is, it is intensely relational. All are under sin. 
What that is saying is that when we sin, it is not like throwing a stick into a bush. It is like grabbing, it is like grabbing a cricket bat and trying to smash God's face in. Now, that might seem like, that might seem like a bit of an over-the-top over statement. But what I'm trying to show us is that there is, there is an inherently personal nature to sin. We sin against God. And don't, don't go saying, oh, you know, I'm someone who, he does his thing and, and I do my thing. Uh, you know, I leave him alone and he leaves me alone. I, I just ignore God and, you know, what's the harm in that? Well, you tell me, there's someone who you love and they ignore you, absolutely blank you, absolutely pretend like you do not exist. You're telling me that that is not something that absolutely cuts you to the heart. We have to drill this into ourselves. Sin is not some neutral thing. God has relational bereavement. He is expressing it here in this passage because sin is intensely relational. When we sin, we are sinning against God. When you and I sin, think about this the next time you sin. We are sinning against God. Not the universe. Not something that we can shake off. Sin is intensely relational. Now, verses 13 to 17 will show us a little bit more about this sin. Okay, um, have, a, have a look there. Uh, it's showing us a way of life, things that we do or say that reveal what it is that we value. The very fact, actually, that we don't value God. So let me run through some of it. It's picking up, a large portion of it is picking up our words. It's when we say the things that we do that stink of death instead of life. When we cut people down, when we speak behind people's backs, when we lie and when we deceive, when we say nice, people, nice things to people because we're trying to flatter them. And under those, those pretty words that go out, there's poison that sits there. We curse and we swear, we complain about others, about our situations. This passage will even describe how people rejecting God will go so far as to shed blood. Okay, murderers, violent crime. And I know, we start talking about shedding blood and all of a sudden you go, oh, you know, it's not talking about me anymore. But don't you see? All of this is a chain reaction. The way it helped me to have a look at it was to think about it this way. Verses 10 to 17, that passage is... It is describing the two greatest commandments. What are, what are the two greatest commandments? What's number one? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What's the second? You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Verse 10 to 12 says that we haven't loved the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. Here is the heart of the sin issue. And then verses 13 to 17 is simply showing us, the way in which some of that has worked out. And we haven't actually loved the people that God has placed around us as we love ourselves. There is relational bereavement again in that, in that second thing and how we treat the people around us. And we are, we are in there. Don't be fooled. We might just be better at keeping the symptoms at bay. But it's there. Have a look at verse 18. This might seem like a bit of a jump, but I, I want to show you that it's actually a summary of some of what we've been talking about. Verse 18 says that all of these things are because 
there is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, what it's saying is that none of this stuff would happen if only people feared God. It wouldn't happen. So how, how is that a summary of, of the things that we've looked at describing sin? Uh, now, I know this, you know this, fear of God in English is a tricky phrase because all it makes us think of is shaking in our boots and some of that is right and proper. But in, in the Old Testament, fear of God is tied up in some wonderful things like joy and happiness. So last month I was reading through Proverbs and I get to 28 verse 14 that says, Happy is the one who always fears. <laughs> happiness and fear together. Or you go to read uh, Psalm 130 um, verse 4 that says, With you is forgiveness, so there is fear. Isn't that confusing? <laughs> happiness... <laughs> Happiness and fear, forgiveness and fear, all of them and a bunch of other really beautiful things linked together. So what is the fear of God? Fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. And so fear of God means to be overwhelmed by wonder before the greatness of God and His love for us. To fear God means to be overwhelmed by wonder before the greatness of God and His love for us. What this is asking us to do is it's it's asking us to be controlled by God, by who He is, by who we are in relationship. It is asking for that wonder and amazement and joy of realizing who God is to control us. It's asking who God is to grip how we love others, what we say, what we do, for who God is to willingly force us down to our knees, So that with tears of joy streaming down our face, we are simply overwhelmed by the majesty, the greatness, the the utter goodness of who God is. And this, friends, is exactly what we haven't done. We haven't feared God. We haven't loved Him. We haven't been in awe. When it is saying all are under sin, Do you see what that's saying? Do you see what sin is? Do you see what it involves? I hope we do, and I hope as Troy kind of helped us see in a previous passage, I hope that we grieve this. (laughs) We haven't loved God. We haven't feared God. Uh, We haven't loved the people that God has placed around us. Friends, the verdict is our third point. Okay, You get all the stuff that we've been speaking about, the, the verdict, which is crystal clear, becomes all are under sin. We are under sin. It is a verdict against us, and it is a verdict against us that is meant to shut us up. We are all sinners. We are all sinners. And so shut up. telling the morning congregation uh, that I still remember a day at kids church in the morning I think Avril might have been there uh, where I was I was helping out with the younger kids and we were playing Simon Says and the kids were being pretty rowdy and um, and not thinking properly I very gently I must add I said Simon Says shut up (laughs) and his little kids they kept quiet like straight away 
but their, their eyes just went big like I just said something against their mom or dad. Uh, now, I say that because I realize that shut up is, is not a nice phrase, uh, and I'm sorry that I may have scarred some of those kids. <laughs> but this time I'm actually getting it from the passage. So have a look at verse 19. Uh, verse 19, the end result, and here's what Paul has been driving at, okay? The end result for both Jew and Gentile is that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. It goes on to say that no one will be justified uh, by what they are able to do and that the law shows us our sin. But here we go. All are under sin. Everyone. That's, that's you guys. <laughs> that's me. And the end result is that every mouth is shut and the whole world is held accountable to God, is subject to God's judgment. We are to realize from this passage that we are rightly under God's judgment. And if we understand that, then we shut up. There's none of that stuff that like happens in school where you go, no, sir, it wasn't me, shut up. Okay, just keep quiet. All are under sin. Those people who, who look good, those people who look bad, don't be fooled. We are all under sin, and so no excuses, no ifs, no buts. All means all. It's pretty simple. All are under sin. It is intensely relational. What are you going to offer to be able to fix that? Because anything that you are able to, to offer, and again, sorry for the crass example, it is just as bad as a man coming to his wife and saying, hey, I've, I've cheated on you, but here are some free movie tickets. It's that kind of... What the heck are you thinking? What are you doing? It's not going to fly. I can do better next time. Shut up. But I can change my motives. No, you can't. We can't. All our under sin is not an invitation to start some kind of DIY project. It is a leveling accusation that is meant to bring us to our knees. And it is meant to get us on our knees with our hands out in need and with a sign affixed to our around our necks that says fix me dear god fix me we need to understand that every effort to offer excuses or to fix ourselves is self-justification it is us saying to god yes i i know that you're saying that that i'm under sin but don't worry (laughs) Just relax, God. There's, there's actually something that I can do. And God looks at that and, and he sees a corpse trying to put on makeup so that he or she looks more alive. Friends, this is, this is what we have. All are under sin. And so all of us are rightly under God's judgment. And what that does is that it shuts us up. The end. Can there be a more depressing sermon that I can preach as my last sermon to you guys? (laughs) I'm kicking you in the head and then saying goodbye. (laughs) This passage is hard-hitting because it's it's meant to be hard-hitting. It is meant to level us. It is actually, it is meant to prepare us. Because what we have here is a a John the Baptist passage. You remember JTB? JTB goes, you are sinners. (laughs) Repent. 
Why did he do that? Well, he was, he was, preparing, he was preparing for Jesus' arrival. He was preparing for Jesus to arrive and to show the way to be saved, a way that starts with us seeing our sin and the need we have to repent. And this is Paul's final JTB passage, okay? This is his final slamming of the case against us. It's something that he's been building up from 118 up until now, 320. And yes, next week, Paul will pen a beautiful Jesus Christ revealed passage. It is the sun of salvation rising in all of its glory, and we'll see what God has done to save us in Christ Jesus. We'll see that in all of its glory. Now, I don't want to steal the thunder of that passage, and so I can only give you a, a glimmer of, of sorts of the rising sun. I can only give you a beam or two to pierce through the darkness. We know our issue already. All are under sin. And so all of us are rightly under God's judgment, sitting under God's judgment. But this is the thing. This is the thing. There is no one righteous, not even one. None of us will get to God by our righteousness. And so what does God do? Well, the righteous one, he comes to us. There is no one who understands. Well, not here. But one comes who does understand. One comes who understands how serious sin is, who understands how serious it is, what must happen for our sin to be dealt with. And he understands it to the point where, well, you can see it in the Garden of Gethsemane, where there are tears of blood that are streaming down his face. He understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. What does God do? We don't seek God. God seeks us. We turn away, he comes and he stands before us and he goes, here I am. Look at me. Behold your God. He does it in his son. Incredible. God comes to the people who have turned away from him. (laughs) He shows his face and he says, here I am. And you want to know how far I would go to show my love for you? But God proves his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. He does it in His Son. He does it in His Holy Spirit who comes and who restarts our hearts, who gives us new hearts so that we can, and new eyes so that we can see who God is. So that our hearts will, will go, He is beautiful. He's utterly worthy. And I must trust in Him. When you understand that, when you see the things that God has done, well, then you can fear God in a way where we are rightly overwhelmed by wonder before the greatness of God and His incredible love for us. And this will grip the way that we live now under this God. The way that we love the people that God has placed around us, the things that we say, the things that we do. We will fear fear God. We will love Him. Friends, that's it. Okay? All are under sin. There is a radical humility there as we realize that we are not better than anyone else. And there is a grief too when we realize how intensely relational sin is. And I hope that you and I remember that the next time that we sin. And when we get all of that, well, we're shut up by the fact, by the truth 
of our rightful judgment. But we are shut up so that finally, finally we can stop and we can listen and we can look properly. We can finally stop and see what it is that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the truthfulness of what it says about us and what it says about you. Father, help us to learn from this passage, to learn that we are under sin, and let us bring us to a point where from on our knees, (laughs) the best place for anyone to be, even as a Christian, from on our knees we can look and we can see you in your goodness to us in the love that you have shown to us, in the fact that you are worthy of our devotion and of our lives. Help us with these things, please, we pray, Father. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.